read. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church, beginning in verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord given to us for our good. Let's pray together and ask God to bless the reading and the preaching of his word. Let's pray. Father, grant us illumination this morning that we might understand the word of God and live by faith. We know, Father, that we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And the scriptures, Father, are your word. You have spoken. You are not silent. You have spoken and revealed yourself. And so we want to live today. And we know that we live by hearing your word. So please do in us, Father, what only you can do by your Holy Spirit. Open our ears. Soften our hearts. Give us eyes to see. Make us ready to repent. Ready to believe. Ready to obey. Ready, Father, to live by faith in what you have spoken. Father, please keep me from error. Please give your church the discernment she needs to hold fast to what is true and so be saved in the end. Father, we ask this confident that you hear us because Jesus Christ is risen from the dead and we pray in his name. Amen. Anytime we open the Bible we ought to be mindful of the fact that we stand in the presence of God. Scripture is most fundamentally the revelation of the living God to us, His people. Every word in Scripture is breathed out by the Holy Spirit. And that means every moment of reading Scripture is awesome in the actual definition of the word. Every moment of reading Scripture is awesome. At the same time, we also recognize that the various parts of the Bible give us varied displays of God's glory. Not every text has the same depth of awesomeness, we might say. For instance, in Exodus chapter 3, Moses encounters God at the burning bush. It's a moment of incredible glory as, as Moses stands on holy ground. That awesome moment differs from Exodus 35, which describes the contributions that Israel makes in order to build the tabernacle. Is Exodus 35 any less inspired than Exodus 3? No, of course not. But do tabernacle contributions land on us with the same weight as the burning bush? No. Within Scripture... There are varied displays of God's glory, some more noticeably awesome compared to others. 
If we applied this point to today's passage, then we could say that chapter 17 is the holy ground of John's gospel. On the night of his betrayal, Jesus, the Son of God, prays to his Father. And he graciously allows his disciples to listen in on his prayer. Think think of that, friends. If there is an inner working to the triune God... If there's an inner sanctum to to the life of God within himself, John 17 is as close as we're going to get. In these verses, Jesus pulls back the curtain of our creatureliness to give us an inside look at the fellowship God has within himself. So all of scripture is breathed out by God and the whole of John's gospel is full of grace and truth. But here in chapter 17, we get a little taste of what it's like to stand on holy ground. The Word made flesh, the Good Shepherd, the Bread of Life, the Light of the World, the Son of God Himself lifts His eyes to heaven and He prays to His Father and we listen. Before we dig into this magnificent text, let me give you a big picture overview of John 17. To help you today as you listen. Traditionally this chapter is called Jesus' high priestly prayer. You probably have that heading in your Bibles. Priests as you know intercede between people and God. And that means the, the traditional title for this chapter is fitting. Jesus spends a good portion of this prayer interceding for other people. You can see it in the structure of the passage. The prayer has three parts. Notice the parts of the prayer with me. Verses 1 to 5, Jesus prays for his own glorification. But then very quickly, verses 6 to 19, he shifts to pray for his disciples. And then the chapter concludes, verses 20 to 26, with Jesus praying for his future disciples, those who will believe, that's you and me. So five verses on his glory, and then however many that is, subtracted from 26, praying for other people, for us, for his disciples. That simple structure reveals the focus of Jesus' prayer. He is interceding for his own. In that way, John 17 is a preview of Jesus' heavenly ministry. He's still on earth, but it's a preview of his heavenly ministry. Where is the Lord Jesus right now? Seated at the right hand of God. And what is he doing? Interceding for you and me. For his church. And it's a profound prayer in this chapter. It really is a profound moment of intercession. Just consider some of the themes that show up in this prayer. I'm just going to run quickly through some of the themes. The glory of God revealed in Jesus' death and resurrection the knowledge of God that comes only through through Jesus Christ, Jesus' calling of the disciples out of the world, those disciples being entrusted with Jesus' teaching, the protection and preservation of those disciples by God Himself, the unity of the Father and the Son, which believers share through their unity in the faith. Friends, those are profound truths, are they not? D.A. Carson, in his excellent commentary, says that chapter 17 is essentially a summary of the entire gospel. And I think he's right. 
John 17 is a masterpiece of intercession that also instructs. For that reason, we're going to spend a few weeks in in this chapter. Since Jesus' prayer has three parts, God willing, we're going to spend three messages on Jesus' prayer. If that sounds to you like a lot of sermons on one prayer, consider that Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones preached 48 sermons on John 17. I'm not going to quibble with the good doctor, but I I trust three will be sufficient. Today's message focuses on the first part of Jesus' prayer, verses 1 to 5, His request that the Father glorify the Son. That opening request, the Father glorify the Son, that opening request gives us the outline for our study. We're going to consider three ways Christ is glorified. We're going to consider three ways Christ is glorified, both in the present as He heads to the cross, but also in the future as He anticipates the fulfillment of God's plan. So that's our outline for this morning. Three ways that Christ is glorified from John 17. The first comes in that opening request from Jesus, verses 1 and 2. Christ is glorified through His suffering. The first way, Christ is glorified through His suffering. You'll remember that Jesus has just finished the farewell discourse, chapters 14 to 16. He's just finished that discourse where he prepared his disciples to live faithfully following his departure. That gives us a sense of the timeline of events in Jesus' life at this point. Jesus and the disciples are still in the upper room. They've just celebrated the Lord's Supper, though John doesn't record that event. And they're about to head out to Gethsemane, where Judas will betray the Lord. That's the timeline. But before they head out, Jesus prays. The last thing he does before they go out into the night is he prays. That, in and of itself, is remarkable. It's been clear all through John's Gospel that Jesus of Nazareth is the eternal Son of God. He is equal to God in power and glory and truth. There's no doubt in John's Gospel that Jesus is absolutely and fully divine. And yet the last act of Jesus' life before He heads into His moment of passion, His last act is to pray. That's a remarkable display of humility. That the Son of God would not presume to face the cross on His own, but instead would pray both for himself and for his people. It's a remarkable display of humility. It's also an incredible display of confidence in God. We get a sense of this straight away in verse 1. Notice Jesus' reference to the hour. Verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. In John's Gospel, the hour, that phrase, the hour refers to Jesus' death on the cross. And most of the time, the hour in John is future. My hour is not yet, Jesus says in John chapter 2 to his mother. My hour is not yet. But here in chapter 17, Jesus says the hour has come. The time for his crucifixion has arrived. As readers of John's gospel, that seems like a rather simple observation to us. Because we know the timeline of Jesus' life. We know what's coming because we're familiar with the rest of the story, right? 
But friends, think about the statement from Jesus' perspective in this moment. In John 17, all of the events of the Passion are still future. They haven't come yet. And still, Jesus says that the hour has come. He speaks of it as though it's a certainty, that it's already arrived. How can he speak with that kind of certainty, that kind of confidence? The answer, friends, is because God, the Father, has appointed this hour. It is God's will for the Son to go to the cross. And that's why the hour has come. Judas does not control the hour. Caiaphas does not control the hour. The Sanhedrin and Pilate and the angry mob, they don't control the hour. God does. The hour has come for Jesus to die because God appointed this hour for this very thing. And this confidence in the purpose of God is what gives rise to Jesus' request. Listen to what he prays for. Verse 1. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. That word glorify is significant. This is one of those biblical words that we throw around a lot, but we rarely ever define. So I'm going to attempt the unattemptable. Going to try to define what it means to glorify the Son. In Scripture, glory is uniquely connected to God. Isaiah 42, for example. I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I will not give to another. So in the Bible, glory is uniquely connected to God, it belongs uniquely to God, and it communicates both His worth and His worthiness. Worth and worthiness. God is perfect in Himself. All of His attributes are perfectly complete. So that His worth, His glory, is incalculable. And because of that incalculable worth, all that God does is right and wise and good and perfect. There's a worthiness to God's actions that flows from the worth of God's perfections. Glory. You get a sense now why we sometimes struggle to define what it means to glorify God. How do you define infinite greatness? How do you capture in a phrase perfect beauty? How do you get your mind around unapproachable light? You can't, really. At least not in full. We have to be content with our limits. We have to be content with our limits. Glory belongs uniquely to God as the expression of His worth. He's perfect in everything that He possesses and an expression of His worthiness. His perfection in Himself is demonstrated in exactly the glorious reality of what He does being perfect. His worth and His worthiness. So in light of that way too short definition of glorifying God, two stunning points should stand out to you from Jesus' request. There's two things that should immediately get your attention. The first is that Jesus asks for what rightly belongs only to God. Glory. I mean, we just read Isaiah 42. I just quoted it. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I will not give to another. And in John 17, Jesus says, give me that glory. He asks for what rightly belongs only to God. 
very clearly then, Jesus understands himself to be God. In every age, in every age, there are attempts to make Jesus something less than divine. And to use his own words to prove it. This happens in every age. Mormons try to do it. Humanists try to do it. Muslims try to do it. But a less than divine Jesus fails to take seriously Jesus' own words. I mean, verse 1 is the proof. He asks for what rightly belongs only to God because Jesus understands himself to be God in the flesh. That point alone is stunning. But the second point is what I want to draw your attention to today. The glory that Jesus requests comes through the hour the Father has appointed. You see it? The glory that He requests comes through the hour that the Father has appointed. We just noted that the hour in verse 1 refers to Jesus' death. So if He is about to die, of all of the things that He might ask for, glory would not rank very high on our list, would it? He's about to be crucified. Where's the glory in that? From the world's perspective, Jesus' hour, His death, is only shame and agony and defeat. But in God's economy, this hour is the glory. The hour of His being lifted up is the triumph. It's precisely through the shame of the cross that the Son will be glorified as the Savior of God's people. The glory He requests comes through the hour the Father has appointed. And in this way, the Father is glorified in the Son. Please don't miss the rest of verse 1 there. Jesus prays for the Father to glorify Him so that He might glorify the Father. This is actually very significant. When Jesus prays for His own glory, He is not an egomaniac starved for attention. Rather, Jesus asks for glory to be given to Him so that in Him, the Father's glory might be revealed more clearly. Jesus explains this point in verse 2. Listen again to how he explains this relationship between the Son and the Father and glory. Glorify the Son that the Son may glorify you, verse 2, since you have given the Son authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given Him. There's a lot to unpack in that verse. And it all hinges on God. It all hinges on God. God, as Scripture teaches, is merciful and gracious. He is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He by no means excuses evil. He is just. But God's justice is married to His mercy so that He overflows with grace to the undeserving. This is part of God's glory. This is that worth we were talking about a moment ago. This is part of God's glory. Who He is. Now, here's the tie to Jesus' prayer. In the course of history, in the course of human history, where is God's glory, His merciful graciousness? Where is God's glory most clearly displayed? In the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
That's what Jesus means in verse 2. That's what he has in view in verse 2. Before the foundation of the world, God determined to reveal his glory. How? In the salvation of sinners. How would that salvation come to pass? By the Son, who would be faithful to his Father even unto death. The Father revealed his glory by saving sinners, carried out by the Son, who would be faithful unto death. And in that agreement within God, the Bible calls that a covenant, within that agreement within God to save people for His glory, the Father entrusted the Son with all authority. The Father gave the Son all authority to accomplish this salvation. Now, I know that's a lot to take in, but the clarifying key is the cross of Jesus Christ. Let's, let's try to bring it down here to the level that we're at in John. When Jesus, just try to imagine it for a moment, okay? When Jesus is trudging up the hill to Golgotha, and he has the weight of that cross beam upon his beaten back, what the world sees in that moment is shame. What the world sees is agony, defeat. And what Jesus is praying for here is telling us that we are actually witnessing in that moment, as the cross weighs down upon his back, as he trudges up the hill, we are actually witnessing in that moment the eternal plan of God coming to pass in Jesus Christ. In that moment, we see that God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, but he by no means will clear the guilty. That's the glory Jesus asks for in verse 1 and 2. It's the glory of God that stretches back into eternity that's now being revealed through Jesus' suffering. Uniquely and clearly, the Son is glorified in this, this hour, this hour of, of the cross. Before we move on, I want to try to connect Jesus' request with our life as a local church. We, we want to glorify Jesus Christ as a church. Amen? If there's ever a time to say amen in church, that's it. We want to glorify Jesus Christ. That's our aim in life and ministry. How do we do that? Answer. By keeping the gospel central. Follow the logic of Jesus' prayer. Since Christ is glorified through his suffering, emphasizing the gospel is how we glorify Christ as a church. So practically, when we preach the gospel, we glorify Christ as the Savior. When we encourage other members with the gospel, we glorify Christ. When we evangelize and disciple our children in the gospel, we're glorifying Jesus. When we clarify the gospel through church membership and discipline, we glorify the Son of God. When we sing songs... 
that recount the truth of the gospel. We are glorifying God together with one voice. When we patiently and boldly call unbelievers to turn from their sin and believe the gospel, we glorify Jesus Christ. When we practice baptism and celebrate the Lord's Supper, which are pictures of the gospel, we glorify Jesus Christ. Listen, the point that I'm trying to get us to see is that glorifying Christ is actually not some super spiritual activity that you have to wait around to find. It's right in front of you. It's right in front of you. As the people of God gathered together under the gospel of Christ. When we keep the gospel the main thing, we glorify the Son of God because that's where God's glory is revealed. In the crucified Jesus. He's glorified through His suffering and rising again. And when we keep the gospel the main thing, we join God in that work of glorifying the Son. So glorifying Christ is not actually something you have to wait around to find. It's right in front of you. It's what God has given you to do right now in the life and ministry of this church. That application transitions us right into the second way that Christ is glorified. He's glorified through His suffering. And then in verse 3, we also see that Christ is glorified in His people. It's the second way Christ is glorified in His people. You probably noticed in verse 2 that Jesus mentions giving eternal life to those whom the Father gave Him. Do you see that? I give eternal life to those whom the Father gave me, verse 2. That's a pretty clear reminder that salvation is not indefinite or open-ended. God the Father determined to save a particular people, His church. He gave those people to the Son. And by grace, the Son gave them eternal life through faith in His name. There's an entire theology of salvation crammed into verse 2. And it begins with eternal life. In verse 3, Jesus defines eternal life in a way that reveals His glory. Listen again to verse 3. And, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. What should stand out to you in verse 3 is how Jesus defines eternal life personally and relationally. Both are significant. By personally, I mean Jesus connects eternal life with God, not time. Since eternity is an unending period of time, we tend to assume that eternal life is primarily an unending existence. But that perspective is far too limited for what Jesus is talking about in verse 3. Eternity, eternal life is more personal than it is temporal. It's not less than temporal, but it's more personal than it is temporal. To have eternal life is not to exist unendingly, it's to know God. More personal than temporal. So the first standout in verse 3 is that Jesus defines eternal life personally. It's to know God. The second standout is just as important. Jesus defines eternal life Relationally. Relationally. Let's think about that verb, to know, in verse 3. 
we're going to think about the verb to know. If we're not careful, we could read verse 3 as though Jesus is saying intellectual advancement is the path to eternal life. To know something is to have knowledge about it. And so we assume, because knowledge consists of facts and propositions and arguments, eternal life must therefore be some kind of intellectual advancement. As I know more stuff, I live eternally. But in reality, the verb to know is a relational term in Scripture. It does not exclude intellectual things like facts and propositions, but it does not stop with those intellectual pursuits. To know God biblically is to exist in relationship with Him, where our knowledge of God produces joy and faith and obedience and devotion. So to know is not primarily intellectual, it is relational. So the analogy with marriage is helpful at this point. I've been married to Laura for 20 years this June. I love her now more than I did on June the 7th, 2003. Why do I love her more now? Because I know her better. Do I know more facts about her? Yes, of course. But those facts are not just facts. They're insight into who she is. And that insight produces delight in me. And that delight produces devotion. Why would I want to know anyone else? The insight produces delight. The delight produces devotion. And the devotion drives me to do what? Know her more. Friends, in a similar way, that's how our relationship with God is meant to work. Knowledge of God is never static or intellectual. People say to me sometimes, well, I don't care about doctrine because I don't want to get caught up in head knowledge. And I want to say every time, then you don't understand a lick about doctrine. The Bible has no concept of head knowledge. In the Bible, to know is to relate to. The knowledge of God is never static. It's never merely intellectual. The knowledge of God is active and relational, changing us and shaping us so that in the end, we seek to know Him more. And over time, what happens? What happens as our knowledge of God drives us to know God more? What happens? We live. We live. And we do so eternally because the one that we have come to know is the one true God who is himself eternal. To know is not merely intellectual, it's relational. This is why way back in John chapter 3, the apostle said that believers have eternal life now in the present. How can we have eternal life now when our bodies are surely going to face the long sleep of death? How can we have eternal life in the present? Because eternal life is not just temporal and intellectual, it's personal and relational. To have eternal life is to know God. And to know God is to live. Brothers and sisters, this is why, this is why I so often urge you to take in God's Word by reading it and to grow in your understanding of who God is. Somebody told me once that I spend way too much application 
urging Christians to do things like read the Bible and pray. Those are elementary things this person said to me. I just couldn't disagree more. This is how we live, by knowing God. And more importantly, this is how God is glorified, as His people know Him. Because the knowledge of Him produces delight, and delight produces devotion, and devotion leads us to do what? Know Him more. Knowledge of God is never static. It changes us so that we are shaped after His likeness, and therefore we seek to know Him. So I'll share with you something that an older, wiser Christian shared with me many years ago. Pretty much, if I ever say anything helpful to you, somebody else said it, and I'm just repeating it to you. So an older Christian said this to me many years ago. He said, Jeff, time spent knowing God is never wasted. And I put a hearty amen to that. Time spent knowing God is never wasted. This is how we live, as we know God by faith. So what's the connection with Jesus? This whole sermon is about how Christ is glorified. So how does the knowledge of God, which is eternal life, glorify Jesus? Look at the last phrase in verse 3. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Where do we know God in a life-giving way? Only in Jesus Christ. Only in the gospel. Remember back in chapter 1, no one has ever seen God. The only Son who is at the Father's side has made Him known. Apart from Christ, that incredible dynamic that we just described of the active knowledge of God changing us so that we know Him more, apart from Christ, that incredible dynamic never happens in anyone's life. It's only through Christ that we know God and receive eternal life. Again, brothers and sisters, this is why we should always strive to have the gospel be the central point of reference in our lives. Far too many Christians, I want you to hear me on this, far too many Christians reduce the gospel to the front door of Christianity. And once I'm in, I'm going to go on to other things. There are no other things. There are no other things. We need the gospel the day that we become Christians and every day afterwards. Because it's in the gospel, the good news of Christ crucified for sinners and raised for our justification, it's in the gospel that we know God. And to know God is to live. So this is how Christ is glorified, according to John 17. He's glorified in His people as they know God through Him. Let's look at the final way, way number three, that Christ is glorified in this passage from verses 4 and 5. Christ is glorified for His faithfulness, through His suffering, in His people, and now, number three, for His faithfulness. In verse 4, Jesus summarizes His ministry in terms of faithfulness. Look again, verse 4. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. It's striking that Jesus speaks in the past tense, isn't it? He has yet to go to the cross, but he speaks in the past tense. His face is so set on the cross that nothing will deter him. He's been faithful to the Father from eternity past until now. And that faithfulness is going to extend into the next several hours as the Lord faces death. And through this faithful obedience, the Son has glorified 
the Father. I glorified you, Jesus says. I've done it. I've accomplished what you gave me to do. In some sense, that is the entirety of Jesus' mission. He is the Word made flesh, which means that He came to earth to make God known. So the Son glorifies the Father by revealing the Father to us. And that work of revelation reaches its pinnacle at the cross, which is what we've talked about all this morning. The Son is faithful to the Father, and through that faithfulness, the Father's glorified as the God who saves. That's verse 4. All of Jesus' ministry summarized as faithfulness. In verse 5, Jesus returns to his opening request that the Father would glorify the Son. But now, Jesus frames the request in terms of eternity. Listen again, verse 5. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Again, if you want Jesus' understanding of his own identity, John 17 is a great place to look. I said if, if there's an inner sanctum to the workings of God that we have access to, John 17 is as close as we get. And so if you want an understanding of who Jesus knew himself to be, this is a good place. As the Son, Christ was with the Father before the world existed. Jesus claims to have existed before time began. That's the same way as saying the Son of God is eternal. There was never a time when the Son was not. He's eternal. And so like we said earlier, there's simply no meaningful way for Jesus to be anything less than divine if you take his own words seriously. He is self-consciously the eternal Son of God. And now Jesus prays for that eternal glory to be revealed in his earthly faithfulness. Follow the prayer from verse 4 to verse 5. Verse 4, Jesus has been faithful to the Father on earth. And now, verse 5, he prays for his eternal glory to be displayed in that earthly faithfulness. There's a mixing here of heaven and earth, it seems, in the Son. When we say that the Word became flesh, that's, that's the Son's identity in John. He's the Word of God who became flesh. When we say that the Word became flesh, we mean in some way that the eternal glory of the Son was veiled in Jesus' flesh and blood. That wonderful line from Hark the Herald Angels Sing, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. So when we say that Jesus was the Word made flesh, we're trying to take heaven's glory and earth together in, in the person of Jesus. So the glory of heaven which belongs to the Son was robed in humanity, even in our humanity. That's such a shockingly humble thing, isn't it? It's hard to fathom the eternal Son of God being anything less than resplendent in glory. And yet that's what we've seen all through John's Gospel. The Word became flesh. But through His death, follow me here, through the laying down of His flesh and blood, we see the eternal glory of the Son. It's really a remarkable exchange. I know that we rejoice in Jesus' resurrection as our justification. We celebrate the resurrection as our salvation, and we're right to do so. But at the heart of it, biblically speaking, Christ's resurrection is saying more about Him than it is about us. The resurrection is the unveiling of the Son of God, you might say. 
where the glory of the sun and the glory of the resurrection combine to give us eyes to see. This is how the Father will glorify the Son, by raising Him up to sit at the right hand. So Christ's faithfulness on earth becomes that very vehicle through which the Father allows us to see the eternal glory that belongs to the Son. That's verses 4 and 5. And it all runs through the cross and resurrection. We, I mean, we've said it at every point of the sermon today. There is nothing more central to Christians and to churches than the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's nothing more central. The gospel is the good news that Jesus Christ alone is faithful to save his people. Jesus lived a perfect life of obedience to God. The kind of life that we both could not live and would not live. And in response to that perfectly holy life, Jesus was crucified like a sinner, like a rebel, like a traitor. He hung on the cross bearing the punishment that my sins deserved. That was the cost of Jesus' faithfulness. He was crushed under the wrath of God. But the reward for Christ's faithfulness was even greater. Resurrection to life again. Followed by ascension to the Father's right hand. And there at the right hand of the Father, Jesus Christ reigns presently in glory. The same glory that he possessed from eternity past. The same glory that's been revealed in his death and resurrection. The same glory that will be revealed very soon when he returns to judge the living and the dead. The urgency then, the urgency of this message is rather clear. Today is the day to respond to Jesus Christ in repentance and faith. We've talked about the gospel all morning. All morning. And the gospel has certain elements that you can't do without. God, humanity, Jesus Christ, and a response. A response. We've talked about the gospel all morning, and now the Word of God in John 17 is calling all of us to believe that gospel. If you're a Christian, the Bible is actually calling you today to continue believing that good news that has saved you. Let us hold fast the confession of our faith. That's a present imperative to us today, for all who are believers, that we would hold firm to the gospel. Through that continued faith, God is keeping us for glory. So if you're a Christian, God's word is calling you to believe the gospel. If you're not a Christian, if you've not repented of your sins and trusted in Jesus Christ, the call for you from Scripture is to acknowledge before God that you cannot save yourself. Indeed, you deserve nothing but eternal judgment. And yet by turning from that sin and trusting in Jesus' death and resurrection on your behalf... You believe that Christ, the eternal Son, will save you and bring you with Him into glory. So if you're not a Christian today, the call of this passage, indeed the call of every passage, is for you to trust Jesus Christ. Confess your sin and trust Him. We're not playing religious games this morning. Every time you open the Bible, you stand in the presence of God. And if you don't stand there clothed in the blood of Christ, then you won't stand. This is the most important way that Jesus is glorified in the salvation of sinners who can't save themselves. 
And so if you're not a Christian today, we would plead with you to turn from your sin and to trust him. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us. We cannot bear the fruit that you want of us and require of us apart from the work of your Holy Spirit. So as we prepare to sing now a song of closing praise, and as we prepare to come to your table, we pray for the Holy Spirit to bear fruit in people's lives beyond what we could ask or imagine. Father, we pray that you would strengthen believers today through faith in the gospel, that those who are discouraged, weak, doubting, frail, and wayward would return to you, be strengthened by you, be encouraged in your presence through trusting that Jesus Christ alone can save. Father, we pray that there are, if there are those among us, and indeed there surely are, who do not know Christ, who are presently, Father, still in their sins, would you grant them the new birth? Would you give them eternal life through your Son? And by your Spirit, may you open their eyes to turn from their sin and trust in Christ and be saved. Father, anytime we open the Word of God, we stand in your presence. It's an awesome thing. Help us to not take it lightly. Bear fruit now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand and let's sing God's praise together. Immovable our hope remains Though sinking sands before us lie The one who washed away our stains Shall bear us safely to the skies The floods may rise, the winds may beat Torrential rains descend Yet God His own will not forget He'll love and keep us to the end You'll love and keep us to the end This is eternal life to know The living God in Christ the Son The Savior will not let us go Until the saving work is done Our debt was great as was our need But now the price is paid Who can behold Emmanuel bleed And doubt his willingness to say we trust your willingness to say the Lord acquits who can condemn though Satan's accusations fly his power can never reach our names to blot them from the book of life the Son has surely made us free, His word forever stands. And all our joy is knowing we are graven on His wounded hands. We're graven on your wounded hands. Built into Christ secure we stand For with this spirit we've been sealed By grace we'll see the promised land Where every sorrow shall be healed 
to God who gave his only son, to Jesus Christ our Lord, to God the Spirit three in one, be songs of praise forevermore. We'll sing your praise forevermore.